according to the practices of people. When you go into some of the mosques in Egypt, for example, you have, and I have observed with my own eyes, people making tawaf around the graves of people who are held inside these masjids. Tawaf meaning they're circumambulating them, the way people circumambulate the Kaaba. Going on in huge numbers. And you will see ulama sitting, not involved in it, but sitting at a distance, studying, going on. Not saying anything. Nobody dares to stop these people. This is a problem. So you have a sickness there where the scholars themselves are not challenging. They're not stopping this because it's become so widespread. So we cannot judge, you cannot use. See, when you have something like that, which is so obviously, once you start to reflect, you know what they're doing there. This tawaf is forbidden. This is prohibited. Haram. But they're doing it. And it's in, you know, Masjid Sayyidina, Sayyidina, Fatima, or whatever. You have all these masjid people, you know, Sayyidina Bedouin, people making tawaf around these graves. But you, you, the, the, the graveyards in, in Egypt. And I've been there. I went to observe. I heard about I went to see myself. Graveyards, you know, where the graves, there are big structures built over the graves, like homes. So much so that the poor people, because they couldn't find homes, they broke into these places and set up home there. Living in there. And the government, because they couldn't, they couldn't give them alternative housing, brought water in. So they have pipes there now. They, streets and people live there. The graveyards look like towns. And people are living there. Cooking and eating but this is unacceptable Islamically. We are prohibited to build any structure over a grave. Prophet told Ali to go at any grave he found more than a palm's width above the ground to level it with the ground. This is the way of Islam. But that's not what we find. So we can't... You see, when we have a situation where so much corruption in terms of the practices of the religion exists, purification needs, revival needs to take place there. See, then when we look at the practices of people, you know, we, we can't, you know, uh, separate it from the realities of the circumstance. And as I said, ultimately the criteria that we have to go by. And I'm not saying this, you know, you know because I'm just about Egyptians or Egypt. You know, we have great scholars from Egypt. People are very concerned about Quran and Sunnah who are speaking also out against these things. You do have. But um, the reality is that the, there are many, many deviant practices which exist. And there's much effort which needs to be made to purify the, the, the religion of the masses, you know, which has become what they call folk Islam. You know, they're doing certain traditional things which are, many of which are against Islam. So, uh, we have to go back to the foundation. The foundation is that no practice, no matter how we rationalize it, if it was not sanctioned by the Prophet Muhammad Wasallam, then it is unacceptable Islamically. Because you have people, for example, who will gather in some other countries, read the Quran together. You know, a person has died, they will have, get a, have a gathering, and everybody will take a portion of the Quran, a 30th part of the Quran. They will sit, and they all recite it at the same time. Nobody knows what anybody else is saying, everybody is saying on top of the other. They are all reciting. At the end, then they ask that this, the, the reward for this recitation be given to the dead person. Technically speaking, the idea of reciting the Quran and asking God to give the reward of that recitation to a person who has passed away sounds nice. Sounds reasonable. Sounds good. 
But the point is that this was not the way of the Prophet. This was not his way. He did not tell people to do this. His companions didn't do this. It's not their way. And particularly you see how the form, how it has become, where people are now sitting, and it's just a ritual. They all take the Quran and they all just, you know, blah, 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 everyone on top of the other. But if you were to ask the individual, they will give you all kinds of rationales and reasonabilities as to why we do this. <laughs> but the bottom line, what we always have to come back to, is did the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu do it? Or tell us to do it? Did his companions do it? Or teach their students to do it? If the answer is no, then we don't want to do it. Well, excuse me. For example, my father died, and uh, I want to present him with uh, some part of the Holy Quran. So when I went to Mecca, for example, I read uh, many surahs for his soul. So what's the point? The opinion of religion in this situation. You know, the Prophet Muhammad has said that when a man dies, his deeds are cut off, right? Except in the case of three things. One, a charitable act that he has done, which people continue to benefit from. He built a masjid, he built a home for orphans, whatever, that people continue to benefit from or knowledge which he has passed on which has benefited people you know they've they've learned from it and they pass it on to others it's, you know or a son who prays for him a righteous son he has a righteous son you know with the righteous son being a product of his actions he raised his son in a proper way he died his son raises his hands in prayer ask God to bless him protect him so you know this is what the Prophet said you know, to pray for him. Now, the issue of reciting the Quran and asking God to reward him with the reward of this recitation. See, this is a practice now which is questionable. It's questionable from the point of view, one, that you went to Mecca to do it because somehow you felt that reciting the Qur'an in Mecca was better than reciting the Qur'an in your home. It just happened in Mecca. Okay, okay. <laughs> okay. Because I know some people who do have these kind of ideas, right? You know. But the point is that um, uh, still the idea, there are some scholars who hold it uh, because we're allowed to make Hajj for a parent who had the intent to make Hajj and was unable or died if we have already made Hajj for ourselves we're allowed to make Hajj on their behalf and also fasting if they had the intent to fast if they had made a commitment you know an oath to fast for a particular purpose or what reason or whatever you know that you may fast on their behalf also you know as long as you are not giving up your own responsibilities to do so you know, these two were sanctioned particularly by the Prophet Muhammad Now the others have made a kind of analogy saying that since it is okay in this area then it may also be okay in this other area. 
some scholars hold that you know really no we have to stop where the prophet stopped you know what is clear that he gave us you know of the compulsory things you see because that's what you're talking about is hajj and fasting these were compulsory duties for you to do it on their behalf is one thing another thing was to read the Quran this is not a compulsory duty in the sense that was on them that you were doing on their behalf you're doing now another act and the way which he gave you was to pray for them why not just do what he told us why start to find other things now that you're you're going to have question marks on it. You know, is it really? Is it acceptable? We're not sure. And this one says no. This one says yes. And no, we have one which is sure. He said, "You pray for him. This is sure. It benefits him." I mean, the prayer. The best prayer is <coughs> sorry, using God's own words. Subhanallah. This is what I I think. The best way to pray is to recite or to to talk to read what God has revealed on our Prophet Muhammad Okay. Uh, the principle, our brother, just to say to, in case you couldn't hear, our brother expressed that the best way to pray, in his opinion, was to recite the words of God. Now, this is questionable. The prayers which God specified, we can say these are the best prayers. But just to recite the word of God, in other words, God is telling you, um, for example, uh, when the time comes for wudu, you know, you need to make prayer, you go wash your hands. And this is better than you praying and ask God to purify your soul. No, this is questionable. Very questionable. You know? There is benefit and blessings in the recitation of the word of God from the point of view that you absorb what God is saying to you. If he is giving a commandment to you to do this or to do that, the best way that you can deal with that command is to do it. Not to recite it. Right? Prayer, you know, is from your heart. The acceptable and your best prayer is the prayer which comes from your heart. If you know a prayer which God has taught, or the Prophet Muhammad has taught, these are the best when done sincerely from our heart. From our hearts. This is what I would just say. I wouldn't just take Quran in general, just any verse, anywhere to say that if I recite this is the best way to pray. No. Because in our formal prayer, we recite certain portions of the Quran and then we do certain other things. And when we recite certain other things which the Prophet Muhammad gave us, if we recite the Quran in its place, it is not better. It's not better. In fact, it's not acceptable. It can destroy the value of our prayer altogether. So, you know, as they say, you know, لِكُلِّ مَقَامٍ مَقَالٍ You know, every circumstance has its suitable statement or action. Okay. I have to go back to Torah information because this spoke about smoke. And I can say that people do smoke. But not the question what I ask many times in my day when I think discuss many times about is what you told Muhammad told 
don't have no intent for harm others. What person to overeating themselves, to overeating themselves, that there is erotic, there is some diabetic medicine, there is some heart infection, there is some maybe five surgery. A lot of money is going to stop also. What is Islam saying about it? Anything but it's moving around or propagating Sure. Anything which is harmful to us is prohibited in Islam. So excess Excess in anything in Islam is prohibited. You know, we have a course, a moderate course. The Prophet Muhammad said that the believer eats as if he had one stomach. You know, whereas the disbeliever as if he had seven. So there's a distinction between the two in terms of the eating habits. He controls. But he said when he eats, he eats, believer eats, he, 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 he eats a third, he drinks a third, and leaves a third for breathing. So in other words, he doesn't fill his stomach, he eats until he's, oh! <laughs> That's it. Don't be, he doesn't eat in this fashion. You know? And really, it is a shame. You know, uh, some, and I've uh, talked to some Muslims, you know, born Muslims, you know, who, you know, ask me, you know, how's Ramadan going? You know, I'm saying, you know, it's a struggle, you know. They say, oh, oh you're, you're a new Muslim, you know, you, you know, we don't, uh, after you get to be, you know, living in Islam for a long time, then you don't feel fasting anymore, right? But you see, what is happening here, and I'm in there because I've been Muslim for 20 years now, but the point is that he is eating a three-course meal for Sahur before he starts his fast, right? And then when he breaks his fast, he's eating another three-course meal. He spends half the night eating. So naturally, during the day, he's not feeling any hunger. This is defeating the whole purpose of fasting. See, he's taken the fast now as a ritual. Just because he didn't eat between dawn and sunset, he says, I've been fasting. But he ate so much before dawn, you know, his, his stomach is full all the way through the day. This is not fasting, really. It's just going through a ritual. But the true fasting, no. You should feel the fast. This is the real fasting. You know, so it has an effect on you. And what you find is that in many places, you know, Muslims will tell you, I gain weight during Ramadan. This is totally contradictory the principle. In Ramadan, you're supposed to be decreasing and, you know, you should come out lighter than you went in, but people are coming out heavier. Because in the night of Ramadan, they're making all these special foods and they're eating all night, and, you know. Because what is the reality is that the actual test of Ramadan, of the fast, it comes when you break the fast. There is a preliminary test, which is during the period of fasting, but the implementation of the lessons of the fast comes with the breaking of the fast. Because if you break the fast, and you can't stop yourself, you're gorging yourself, you know, you, you, the azan is going and you're just eating as much as you can before you're going to pray, then where is the control, the self-discipline that you're supposed to have learned in the fast? It's gone. It's gone. So this is what has happened, is that the lessons of the fast, to a large degree, are not, have not been learned by many. Because they have been caught up in the ritual and have not understood the principles behind the fast. Very essential. And of course, this goes into all of the various areas. You know, for example, sugar 
for a diabetic a diabetic somebody who's got diabetes and the doctor tells him listen you take sugar it will kill you it will put you in a coma you know you become comatose you could die from it sugar for that person becomes haram so even things which are normally judged as halal can become haram given a certain specific circumstance so we do have a duty we do we have as Muslims we have a duty to look after the body which Allah has given us you know being moderate in our eating and drinking habits etc you know and at the same time not putting into it any poisons any things which are been identified as clearly harmful to the body so it is right across the board
that principle of responsibility. No, I would say that, you know, the principle, I mean, I understand what you're saying, you know, coming from a Western point of view, where... Well, as I said, you know, uh, it as, as I said, it has its basis in the principle of guardianship and you know responsibility in the family. And I would say, I mean, the issue of Western and Eastern, I mean, it has a certain validity. I mean, uh, coming from a Western background myself, I naturally would find it a bit strange. But from a society where people have grown up. You know, you know where it has been taught from childhood or in all the various facets of education where that male is the one with the final authority is the one of responsibility so and so and so then it doesn't seem unnatural to them they, so they take it in their stride you know it, is not, it doesn't seem unfair or anything like this no, you, know, you know so what you call a husband 300 kilometers in because of the time well, if he can call over the telephone, you know, or confirm or whatever, I mean, but the idea of contacting him is important and, and, and good. Yeah, yes, it, it goes back to the, the, the same hadith we mentioned earlier that, you know, each one is a shepherd and each one is responsible for the flock. Then the Prophet went and said that the, the man is responsible for his family. You know, and it's just that issue of responsibility. For example, if you've delegated, you know, identified somebody as the president of the country, and then you have, you know, some decision to make, then, you know, he is the one who has to give that final okay. You accept that. He is the one who has to sign it. You know? Yeah. So. I understand that we know child is allowed to sign for himself? No, but I'm saying, what about the child for himself? You see, in some societies, they may say, well, the child should have the right to sign for himself. Why not? I'm just saying, in some societies, some people may say that and may argue that. Why should a child have to have a, a mother to sign for him or a father to sign for? You know? So, I mean, it is, it is a, it's points of view. It's a point of view. It is not something which is hard and fast to say. In every Muslim country, the woman has to have a man to sign for her. No. This is, the country could decide that in the cases which have to do with operations specific to the woman, she can sign for herself. Finish. 
That's something that could be. I'm just saying that this is, they have, here, they have chosen to go along this particular line and it's based on that principle. But it, I mean, it's not an absolute. If we accept the principle, this is the, the tradition here, it, it does, it is not, it is not against the, the traditions of the Prophet Muhammad of Islam, it is not against that tradition. You know, similarly, if we did choose to allow the woman, you know, to, to, to do that, this would not be against either, you know, if the society as a whole decides, well, we, just like if the issue, for example, of driving, women driving. No, this is not something which is absolute. People here in this country have decided, but we cannot say Islam says a woman cannot drive a car, go back to America or go back to England or Germany or whatever. I mean, to say for a woman who has to, you know, live and survive and look after herself, etc., to say she can't drive a car because she's female, this is ridiculous. But in this particular society where the community has decided it is not necessary, we have ways and means to to provide the women for transportation, etc., you know, uh, we decided to prevent certain harm which may come uh, that women will not be allowed to drive here. This is the choice. Individual. Yeah. yeah. Inshallah. Okay, the sign, the key sign for uh, <laughs> uh, cut it uh, time, I think, has uh, run out and gone past our uh, deadlines, and uh, there's uh, food awaiting us and prayer also. So, inshallah, I would like to turn uh, the program back over to the organizers, inshallah, here. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Oh. Sorry, I had the written question here, which I didn't get a chance to get to. That summarizes basically what I wanted to present concerning the duties of a Muslim. And I'm sure there are other duties which I missed because if we were to try to cover all the duties, then we would be here until Fajr or beyond next tomorrow morning. So I'll just stop here. I don't know what the program is in, in terms of uh, whether we will look at questions at this point or whether you want to go on to something else and look at questions later. At this point? Okay, do... Is there anybody who has any questions concerning the general topic? Go ahead. Well, in the case of dogs, Muslims are not allowed to keep dogs in their homes, you know, as pets. You know, the way we find in the West where a dog becomes man's best friend in the sense that, you know, you have people who have lines of clothing for dogs, you know, winter clothing and summer clothing people dying and leaving their wealth to dogs. This kind of attitude towards dogs, no, this is prohibited in Islam. Not allowed. Dogs have a place. As guard dogs, you may need a dog to guard your home. 
or as a sheep dog, you know, dog which is used with the animals that you are raising, the dogs help to control the animals. These types of hunting dogs, these for specific purposes, these dogs may be kept. But otherwise, just keeping a dog in your home as a pet, this is strongly discouraged in Islam. It's not absolutely prohibited, but it is strongly discouraged. And in talking about dogs, I should just add a clarification. Because to some degree, you know, Muslims, some Muslims, go overboard with regards to the dog. In that, if a dog, you know, happens to come in to a room, you'll find all the Muslims running to the next, to the farthest wall, you know, wanting to be as far away from the dog as possible. You know, for fear that the dog might touch them or brush them or... Well, actually, this is necessary. Because if a dog brushes against you or touches you, it does not break your state of purity. Now some people are under the mistaken impression that if a dog touches you or brushes you, you know, if you are in a state of purity having made ablutions, that your ablution is broken. Or if he touches your clothes, you have to wash these clothes seven times. No, this is not correct. We do have a particular condition concerning the dog that if the dog licks, in a bowl or a glass that you're drinking that you pour out the contents you know pour it in the dog bowl not that you throw it away but you pour it in the dog bowl let him finish and that you are to wash that uh, utensil the bowl or the glass you wash it seven times one of those times you should use clean earth in the, in, for the purification of it but other than that, outside of that, you know, there is nothing that it breaks your state of wudu or, you know, you have to wash your clothes in this fashion and so forth. This is only, this is specifically because there is something. And we might wonder, well, we see people in the West kissing their dogs. They got big dogs here kissing these dogs. You know, the point is that there is something in the dog in the saliva of the dog, etc., which is harmful to man. This is why we have been commanded to take such steps of purification. Because the Islamic laws are not arbitrary. We are told to do certain things, we are prohibited from doing other things because this is helpful to us. It helps to protect us from harm, either spiritual, physical, psychological, etc. In the case of pets like birds, if the bird is a small bird, which is allowed out from time to time to fly around, you know, to keep it in a cage is no harm. But if you're confining this bird, really, you know, in such a way, like it's a very large bird, which normally would be out, you know, stretching its wings. I would say Islamically it is not preferable. If you starve the bird, and of course you are ending up in sin. But if you're feeding the bird properly, I mean, you've got a big parrot and he's in a little cage like this, right? 
uh, it's not preferable because it's being confined you know against its will you are keeping it for beautification purposes for your own pleasure and enjoyment you know better if it were free to fly around and you know you train it to come back to one place whatever for its feeding better like this where the animal has its freedom but I wouldn't say prohibited huh? I'm just saying better but of course there are other pets where they're really you know if they're in um, uh, like fish where people keep fish as pets they're fed properly kept in this environment which is kept clean for them etc etc no harm question concerns sterilization of pets you know to sterilize them so that they may not produce others again this enters into an area of the disliked because it is natural for that pet to have a infants or small whatever you're going to call them whether they're you know small kittens or whatever it is natural and there is a certain amount of love and etc that takes place between the cat and its kittens or dog and its puppies and when you sterilize and the process of sterilization does involve a certain amount of pain though we may use in modern times you know some forms of anesthesia we are in, a, in fact damaging that animal and we have been prohibited from clipping the ears of the animals and you know branding them like with branding irons and things like this you know to uh, identify them you know because of the, the damage and the harm the hurt that is done to the animals so I would say that uh, it would appear that the sterilization would fall into that category of hurting or harming the animal you know and as such would be either disliked or prohibited in Islam it is haram to hunt animals for fun sport what we call you know like the uh, certain people will go hunting they will go hunting after the fox you know they go riding out they have the special uniforms they go out hunting the fox and they're hunting the fox and killing the fox and then you know cutting it up sticking its head on a wall whatever this hunting for fun is prohibited in Islam if you hunt and 
kill the animal and eat it, then it is okay. Fine. You eat it or you give it to others to eat or whatever. It's fine. But just hunting for the pleasure of hunting where the flesh of the animal is discarded or the animal is not a harmful animal but you just kill it though it may not be amongst those that are eaten you just you kill it for the sport of killing it this is based on a statement of the Prophet Muhammad in which he had said do not make the birds your targets you know setting animals as your targets just like you if you're using arrows for example you set up a target so you make an animal or a bird your target instead this is prohibited You know, it, it, it is an aspect of, I mean, it's not shirk in the pure sense, but it, it is like an aspect of, because whenever one, uh, the question that our brother was just uh, raising here, or comment that he was making, you know, concerning uh, shirk, or the worship of other than God, and how it can enter into day-to-day -day practices which people may even take for granted where the time for prayer comes and a person ignores that time for prayer you know the call for prayer goes on doing what they took pleasure in doing or you know a person uh, breaks the laws that Allah has set concerning fornication or stealing or any of these other acts I mean in a sense it is related to submitting to one's desires and God speaks about that in the Quran saying have you seen the one who takes as his God his Lord his desires so you know the, the desires can become a God for you you end up worshipping that God by submitting yourself to your desires, whatever you desire to do, you go ahead and you do it. You desire to, I want to do this, I want to do that. You're just going however your desires, whatever the direction your desires go. In, in doing that, then the, your desires become your God. So you end up worshipping that God. And in worshipping that God, you'll be worshipping that God instead of worshipping the true God. So this becomes like a form of shirk. You know, in a minor sense. Not in the major sense where a person is actually deliberately in his mind and his intent taking another God besides God. Mm -hmm. Yes? The celebration of Eid. Okay, we have two Eids. Um, these are the two celebrations normal on a yearly basis. 
which are allowed to Muslims. The first, in the, at the end of the ninth month, known as Eid al-Fitr, this is the celebration at the end of the month of fasting, in which one is obliged to give charity prior to the time of celebration and to feed uh, the people of the community. So one celebrates the ending of the month of fasting by practically acting on the lessons of that month of fasting. The month of fasting was supposed to bring out in the person a concern for other people because they feel hunger, they feel the pangs of hunger, and this is out of choice because they chose to fast. They reflect on those people who are not choosing to fast. They are fasting because there is no food. So they are supposed to develop some kind of sympathy or empathy with those people, which drives them then to, at the end of the month, they are required to give what is called zakatul fitr. This is before the, the prayer. They are supposed to give a portion for each member of the family, given to the poor. And after they have a feast, they enjoy, but they're supposed to encourage and, 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 and uh, encourage the neighbors, etc., to share in what God has given them. This is the Eid al-Fitr. The second one known as Eid al-Adha, or the celebration of the sacrifice. This is in commemoration of Prophet Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son, his firstborn. When God commanded him in a dream to sacrifice, he was prepared to sacrifice. Then God gave him an animal to sacrifice instead, when it was clear that he had submitted his will totally to God. That's what we're talking about, submission of the will to God. His, his will, his desire is to keep his son alive, his firstborn. But God's will is that he sacrifice his son, so he submitted his will. When he did that, God gave him an animal, and he sacrificed the animal instead. So, on that day, Muslims who are able purchase out of their money an animal, and they sacrifice that animal in commemoration of Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his own son for the pleasure of God. So they sacrifice the animal, which is from their money that they spend. They're taking out some, sacrificing some of their money to purchase the animal. Then they kill the animal and part of the, the flesh of the animal is to be given to the poor and the needy. Part is given to their neighbors and part of it they eat. These are the two uh, celebrations, annual celebrations in a Muslim's year. Is that, is that clear? Alaykum salam wa rahmatullah. You very kindly explained uh, about the Prophet murder that you should not celebrate that. What is the situation about celebrating <coughs> birthdays of children? Because in this society uh, in which we live, it becomes very difficult that if you don't celebrate their birthday, they get very discouraged. And if you do celebrate their birthday, you are doing with us. 
Okay, uh, concerning the celebration of the birthdays of children or our own birthdays or the birthdays of our wives, etc. From a religious point of view, it is slightly different than celebrating the birthday of the Prophet because when we're celebrating the birthday of the Prophet, we're doing so believing that this is pleasing to God. So this becomes an act of worship which is unacceptable to God because the Prophet Muhammad did not do so or command us to do so. That's one category. Now when we celebrate our children's birthday, of course, we're not doing so believing that this is pleasing to God and will bring us closer to God. This is just a custom common to some people. However, this custom has pagan origins to it. It's a custom common amongst those people who do not follow the way of the prophets. When you trace the origin, if you go to the Encyclopedia Britannica and look under the heading of birthday and read what it has to say about where the celebration of birthdays came from, you will see that it is based on paganism, pagan practices, which were existed in Europe and elsewhere. This practice of celebration of birthday, where certain importance is given to the individual's birthday, which we can see manifest in the in the uh, signs of the zodiac, you know, the uh, the what we call astrology, you know, where a person is born on this particular day, it has specific significance is because the stars were in this formation or whatever, you know, and this becomes a form of shirk, this practice and these beliefs is prohibited to a Muslim. So celebration of the birthday is prohibited from a point of view of it being pagan in its origin and we end up imitating the practices of non-Muslims. So from this point of view, we are prohibited from celebrating these birthdays. And as you said, the harm which comes from the celebration of birthdays is obvious. Because you see, your child clamoring for his birthday to be celebrated. And why does he want his birthday celebrated? Because he wants presents. This is what? Because when your birthday is celebrated, you get presents. And uh, if you don't have enough money to afford the presents that he wants, then you're in his bad books. Right? My dad's not a good dad. He's not a nice dad. You know, my friend's dad, he, look, look how good he was. Look how nice he was. He bought him a this, bought him a that. So your son dislikes you, is angry with you because you weren't able to buy the presents that he wanted. Or he is invited to another friend's birthday and this friend is from you know an upper level in the society where they can afford very fancy and nice gifts and he wants to go to this party he wants to bring a good gift and of course again you can't afford this gift you want to buy him a little something and he doesn't want to go with that he's embarrassed he wants to give this little nothing when everybody else is giving big presents so he's very negative towards you dislikes you you're not a good father. And of course, when you forget your wife's birthday, 
for those people who are into birthdays. Your wife is upset with you. Why? You know, you don't can't remember my birthday. You don't love me anymore. Finish. It creates disharmony in families. So, I mean, there are no end of harms which come from the celebration of birthdays. But fundamentally for a Muslim, a Muslim avoids the celebration because of the fact that it is pagan in its origin and it's not really befitting of a Muslim to be involved in practices which have at their root shirk, etc. So he just has to educate his child that we don't celebrate birthdays. You buy him presents at other times. You know, you let him know that your love, etc. is not confined to one day. You know, this is the day when you deserve my love, like Father's Day and Mother's Day and, you know, special days. No, you love, I love you. You know, and if I'm able, I will get you something, but I can't. I know it's a big struggle, you know, especially in communities where people have grown up with that, you know, Western-type influenced uh, communities. It's, it's a big struggle, but it's something that uh, we have to do to establish uh, the correct environment in the home. Mm -hmm. What do you think about the Maulud and the I learned for a fact that some is Asian countries, where it came from, that Maulud and Nabi is sometimes being practiced. I don't know what it is all about, Maulud and Nabi. Oh, uh, and, and uh, it's sometimes called Yawmun Nabi. You know, they have a variety of different names for it. It's the celebration of the birthday of the Prophet. That's what it is. You know? Al-Mawlid, you know, uh, this is this is celebration of the birthday of the Prophet. This is you will find this in most countries that you go to, and and uh, when you really look into it historically, it came about at a particular period in time, you know, in history, uh, it was introduced by the Shiite dynasty, the Fatimids in Egypt, you know, who were deviant, their beliefs and their practices. They're the ones who introduced it first and it started to be celebrated on a state level in Egypt and from there it spread to other parts of the Muslim world you know. mm -hmm. yeah. uh, I want to throw some light on how we celebrate the Maulid Nabal in Egypt well in Egypt there is a celebration, a religious celebration in one or in most of the mosques big mosques in Cairo, for example, and those celebrations are often on air, see, they are broadcast on air, in which the Holy Quran is recited, and also religious speeches with the Holy Quran is recited in those mosques and on these occasions and uh, a large number of religious people deliver religious speeches you see of course talking about the occasion of the birth of the Prophet and uh, remind us of uh, what to do how to be with Muslims and so on on the other hand people in Egypt um, avail themselves 
also this opportunity to, to have life the terms, maybe to, to please their children, to feed their families. And you know, in Egypt, some people are very poor, and they wait for this, for such occasions, to buy things for their children. So this is uh, the nature of our situation. We, we do not make idols, we do not make uh, anything strange. Uh, nothing on the streets except uh, uh, people may wear nice clothes on those days, on that day, for example. Uh, eat good food. That's it. So the celebration is confined nowadays to the, the one of the last mosques, for example, or uh, uh, say the country, for example, the mosque of the Pilgrim Shafi, but you see, in Cairo, and it is broken and easy to In every country, people who practice the celebration have a variety of explanations and justifications for this practice. I mean, this is not peculiar to Egypt. In all the countries where this is celebrated, people have rationales which they have developed to explain why and how we do it and this type of thing. But, you see, we come back to a fundamental principle, you know, not wanting to argue with you on what all goes on, right, because although you have presented it in a very purist point of view, I've heard other uh, statements as to what also goes on, you know, and maybe not in those mosques, but in other areas where the celebration takes place, you know, where poems are read, like in Qasidatul Burda, you know, one of the most famous and, and favorite poems to be read on this circumstance, wherein the attributes of God are given to Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu which is shirk, in Qasidatul Burda, yes, yes, and there are other Qasida is like a poem, right? And there are other poems which are read and sung on these occasions. When you look into them, this is what you see, to a large degree. And uh, music is brought in. People are playing music and, and uh, uh, in some areas you even find uh, alcohol is brought. I'm not saying that this is what is happening specifically in Azhar or so, but I'm just saying that, you know, uh, when you go across the country, you may find variety, variations of this all, right? It may not be all in that purest way in which you have expressed it. Huh? And um, what we have to ultimately look at is what is the intent behind this practice? If the intent is the pleasure of God, then we're talking about worship. And we have the principle concerning worship. The Prophet Muhammad if this was an acceptable form of worship, he would have been the first to tell us to do it. He would have been the first. That's what he said. He didn't leave anything. His companions would have been the first. Are you, do you think today that you are better than the companions of the Prophet Muhammad 
that you can find a way of worshipping God that they didn't know about? Getting closer to God? No, no, no. We believe, the Prophet Muhammad said, his generation is the best of generations. Then those who came after them, then those who came after them. And those generations never celebrated the birthday of the Prophet. So, it is our duty to try to keep our Islam as pure, as close to the way of the Prophet Muhammad as possible to stick, you know, with that path that he set out for us. Because if we are to look and to judge according to the practices of people, when you go into some of the mosques in Egypt, for example, you have, and I have observed with my own eyes, people making tawaf around the graves of people who are held inside these masjids. Tawaf meaning they're circumambulating them, the way people circumambulate the Kaaba. Going on in huge numbers. And you will see ulama sitting, not involved in it, but sitting at a distance. Studying going on. Not saying a thing. Nobody dares to stop these people. This is a problem. So you have a sickness there.